us those updates next time together on the 1st of October. I believe the first Sunday night in October is, uh, the October 1st is a Sunday, and on that Sunday evening, our goal is to continue these updates and just accountability is what it is. In the same way we provide accountability in different ways, uh, it's good for our church to hear about what's happening beyond these four walls. As we were preaching this morning, the Lord is building His church. And the fruit will not always be seen readily and immediately, but in some sense it is. Well, this evening we'll have Miss Sandra join us after she's been attending for quite a while. But how Miss Sandra is even here is, is uh, through that particular ministry. And we just give the Lord all glory and praise uh, for that. If you have your Bibles this evening, let's take our Bibles together and turn to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1, and we were pleased a few weeks ago to be able to, at the end of August, to give an introduction uh, to the book of Esther, and now we return again after a week or two break and come again to continue this new book, Esther chapter 1. The message title this evening is Feasts and Providence, Feasts and Providence, and we'll read the text and read the first a few verses, read through verse 9 here in Esther chapter 1, and one of the first things we see is that feasts and parties are dominant here at the very beginning setting the tone. And as we saw last time with the book of Ruth, Old Testament narrative is, is no joke. Uh, this morning we looked at one phrase of a verse. Uh, tonight we look at a good chunk of a chapter. And so thank you for your patience as we continue to kind of learn how to do Old Testament narrative and, and work our way uh, through it. Join me there, Esther chapter 1 verse 1. The Bible says, now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains, for those of you that are interested in interior details or decorating, the author takes note of that. Verse 6, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. This is absolutely stunning. And they served, verse 7, they served drinks in golden vessels, not Dixie cups, each vessel being different from the other to show the, the, the wealth of uh, samples of all the, the glories of the riches that he had, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. Verse 8, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. And then verse 9, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Well, this is the word of the Lord. 
We come to Esther chapter 1, and we find that the scene is set before us. This book is a unique book, as we saw last time, in that it's unique and that God is not explicitly or overtly mentioned. He's not, in the sense, on the text, but he's behind the scenes. God's sovereign throne and providence is the, the throne that reigns over the throne of Ahasuerus. And so even though God is not explicitly mentioned, we see him in every circumstance and on every page. One commentator says this, in Esther chapter 1, it looks like Ahasuerus is the man with the power over the greatest kingdom on the planet. He is the greatest king that men can see. He is seated on his throne in the palace of Susa. But if you look a little closer, you'll see the shadow of providence hovering just over the royal throne of Ahasuerus. By the way, please forgive me if I struggle over some of these tongue twisters. The Shushan, the SHs there, throw me for a loop. Thank you for your patience on that. And then just Ahasuerus. His other name, as we'll see, is known as Xerxes, which is a little bit easier to say. In this book, God may remain hidden, but what we find is that he is not absent. He may be invisible, but he is still infallible. He may be quiet, but he has undiminished control. He may be disregarded, but his will is never frustrated. He may be unnoticed, but he remains unconquerable. The inimitable J. Vernon McGee says it like this, Providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. And we see the providence of God in every page of this drama of the book of Esther. First of all, I want you to note the royal king. The royal king in verses 1 and 2, King Ahasuerus is introduced to us. This king makes a decree, he makes a feast unto all his princes and servants, and he calls for a feast unlike any other feast that we see really described outside of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Ahasuerus is also known as Xerxes, two X's there if that's any easier, Xerxes, as we saw last time, means the Lion King, interestingly enough, or the hero of heroes. He was certainly a hero. By the age of 32, Xerxes had prevented rebellions and uprisings from both Egypt and Babylon at a very young age. It has echoes of another world-famous ruler named, if you remember, Alexander the Great, who ruled the known world by the age of 33. As we see this ruler introduced to us, the first thing we see is his dynasty and dominion. The author here of the Esther, as we saw last time, we're not sure who the author is. It's believed possibly the scribe Ezra is one of the authors. Mordecai is a suggested author. We don't know for sure. Ultimately, we know that the Holy Spirit is the divine author. But introduced to us on the very cusp of the book is this scene of detail to show us his grandioseness, to show us his power, his authority. The author wants us to see this striking contrast of how powerful this man is. And he does that in verse 1 by pointing us to his dynasty, his dominion that he reigns. Notice there in verse 1, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over the 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So 127 groups, provinces, we would say states today. This is the known world, really, of this day. And Ahasuerus is the known ruler of the known world. He makes sure of that. 
Ahasuerus in the text is a member of the famous dynasty that began with King Cyrus that we see in the Old Testament. For example, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, where we see that Cyrus was the king who conquered Babylon and made the decree that enabled the captive Jews to return again to Palestine. We see that Ahasuerus is a part of this dynasty. The son of Ahasuerus would be known as Artaxerxes I, and he was the king who reigned during the time of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah chapter 1 opens, and Nehemiah is serving in the presence of the king, that is Ahasuerus' son. And that is why we will be going to Nehemiah next to make these links in a chain. Because when we know the story of what God is doing and has done in the book of Esther, we'll then trace that as it leads into the book of Nehemiah. So the events of the book of Esther occur before the events of the book of Nehemiah. But what, what we see here in verse 1 is that Xerxes, Ahasuerus, ruled over a vast kingdom. But there was one thing that he did not rule over. Both he and his father tried multiple times and failed to add ancient Greece to their dominion. And as any tyrant would be, he is unsatiated, he is unsatisfied as he looks at his map and he sees ancient Greece there without him ruling over it. In fact, we even see that God's judgment upon Judah is such that they are numbered among these 127 provinces as a scattered people group, as those under the rule of Ahasuerus. Historians tell us that he ruled for 21 years. He reigned from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. And unlike, or excuse me, like many uh, rulers like he is, he died by assassination. We'll find in Esther chapter 2, verse 21, that Mordecai was one of those who fooled one of the many plots against a King Ahasuerus to assassinate him and to kill him, and therefore ingratiated him to the king, elevated Mordecai's standing in his sight. So we see his dominion. We also see as he is introduced to us that Ahasuerus is a man that is ruled. He may rule. But he is a man who may rule 127 provinces, but he does not rule his own appetites. Now, this is a man who is ruled by his flesh, his lust, his anger, his drunkenness, his arrogance are all sins that rise to the surface as we see this man. In one sense, the best way to describe him is unhinged. He is intoxicated with his own reputation. He's intoxicated with his own extravagance. He is narcissistic, he is humanistic, he is all the istics that you can think of. And what we see here is that his reign is marked by extravagance. In fact, to say that he was a wealthy man, to say that Ahasuerus was rich would be a vast understatement. In fact, 200 years later, historians tell us that when Alexander the Great came to Persia and arrived in Persia, he was absolutely stunned he was stunned not only by the beauty of the palace at Susa, or Shushan the palace, but the discovery of more than a thousand tons of gold bullion, and also 270 tons of gold coins were found, and of course, he took for himself. So here, number one, we see a royal king is brought to us. The attention is placed upon this, this king who is a king of the flesh. He is a king that rules many people rules many things, but he cannot rule himself, and it will ultimately lead to his undoing. 
Secondly, the theme of feasts. Feasts are a theme here of chapter 1. We have a total of three feasts in the first few verses that are introduced to us. A royal feast in verses 3 through 9. First of all, in verse 3, we see the very first feast is mentioned. And this is a feast for all of his officials over his vast empire. In verse 5, we see the second feast is mentioned. And this feast is for all who are in Susa. And then a third feast is mentioned in verse 9, and this, this is Queen Vashti's feast for the women, who are presumably the women of the officials and others who have come along, and this is a more gentler feast that is kind of away, separated from the feast for the men that Ahasuerus is leading. So we see in verse 3 the first banquet, the first feast that is brought to our attention. It is the, we could call the banquet of the century. The purpose of this feast is Ahasuerus wants to impress the world leaders. He wants to show his might, his wealth, the display of his glory in every sphere that he can think of. Notice with me verse 3. That in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces coming before him, being before him. This is the feast of all feasts. King Ahasuerus was able to feed his guests from all around his kingdom, the text tells us, for 180 days. And you thought your afternoon company this afternoon stayed too long. I'm just being facetious. Uh, listen, we all have all had guests that stayed late into the night and you know, we're looking and it's 12 o'clock and we're thinking, you know, I'm tired, I just want, I want to go to bed. Listen, this is a feast that is, is a rivals any other feast or any other wedding party that you've ever been a part of. In fact, it's a six months. 180 days equals out to be six months. Now, this is more than a dinner feast. In fact, historians call this more than just a banquet. This was a great war council that was described as the great war council of 483 B.C. And Ahasuerus' main goal was to convince these leaders, these rulers, to join with him to invade the Grecian Empire. As we mentioned before, Greece and Persia were the two great superpowers of the world at that time. And so really anybody who was a who's who, anybody who was anybody, got invited to this party, received an invitation, dignitaries, leaders, generals, admirals, and people that had power and influence. These were the people who came. And the king, quote-unquote, the, the king over all the earth was, had the goal to influence them, to convince them to join their resources, their armies, their peoples, to go with him to attack Greece. Verse 5, we direct our attention to now. So, for in Susa, after 180 days of extravagant feasting, uh, how many of you guys have ever been to like a, one of those steakhouses, like a Brazilian steakhouse, and they just keep walking up and they keep... Just like, you know, you're like, you know you need to stop. And you just, you can't bring yourself to do it. They just, would you like another one? Well, sure. You know, meat's our love language, right? And so they just keep slicing off another piece and another piece and another piece. Just maybe invoke some of that in your mind's eye. For others, it, it maybe it's just as simple as the abundance of the Golden Corral. I'm not trying to talk down to anybody. I'm just talking about an abundance or a Grace Church potluck over here on a fifth Sunday fellowship. We just don't know when to stop, right? Well, verse 5, just when you think, okay, we're getting to a landing place, 
Ahasuerus throws open his doors from the elite and the who's who, and he invites everyone else to the party. Notice with me verse 5, and when these days were completed, brought to an end, the king made a feast lasting for seven days. For all, you heard that right, for all the people who were in present in Shushan the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And now the citizens, the immediate citizens, administrative staff, family, friends, and others are now all invited to come and to join the festivities. And just so we can get a grasp of just how grand and how glorious this event was, again, we saw verse 6, the description of the couches were of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of alabaster, think crushed stones put into a mesmerating design. If you're into, again, interior design, this is quite the description uh, that is given to us to help us to get a grasp. They're made of turquoise and white and black marble. All of these resources have been brought from the four corners of the earth, and all of these things are given to us to show just really how powerful, how vast is the wealth of Ahasuerus. The Persian, the Persian word for garden that we see here is, is paradata, and it's the word that English translators use that gives us our word uh, a paradise. And so we see that these banquet rooms are laden down with fine ornaments, but the, it's the inside, but then also the outside are ornate designs of, of just designed gardens and walkthroughs and fountains and waterways. And all of these things to absolutely stun the guests as they come. Archaeologists have discovered that the guests would have observed magnificent stone channels carrying water, aqueducts across acres of flowers and trees planted in symmetrical rows and creative patterns. In fact, this is one of the kind of the lasting, if you will, just artifacts as we dig up, as modern-day archaeologists dig up from this century, this time period, these, these peoples, this was their thing. You can think of like the, the hanging gardens of Babylon. That was what Nebuchadnezzar was famous for. The beauty of this place, the beauty of this paradise, was reflected in the water of the ponds, which would then frame the palace. Here's the point. This place was meant to impress. This place was a paradise. This was the king, the king of the paradise, and his name is Ahasuerus. Now, to outsiders looking in, the message is being received. This king comes across in every way as being a king who has been, seen, and conquered. You know, like the t-shirt says, we came, we saw, it's on a four-year-old. We came, you know, we saw, we conquered. These funny t-shirt slogans. Well, listen, this king came, he saw, and he conquered everywhere he goes. And so all of this is meant to, to message, to communicate that this king has the greatest army that the world has ever known. He, he is undefeatable. He is the powerful sovereign who could and would make you break, subdue kingdoms, and rule over you. So the book of Esther, as we will find, is a book of literary device that uses irony. Irony is all over the pages of Esther. And so the, the writer here of the book of Esther frames things as, in such a way as to show us Ahasuerus is the commander of the known world, and yet he cannot even control himself 
And as we'll see in just a moment, he cannot control his wife. Now, it's one thing to not be able to control yourself or to control your wife, but for it to be in such a public display is an absolute disaster for King Ahasuerus. So a royal king, we see royal feasts, verses 3 through 9. And then thirdly, we come to what is described as just simply a royal mess. A royal mess in verses 10 through 18. Ahasuerus' feast is for men only. And so Queen Vashti, as we've noted before, had her own gathering, her own feast for the women. She treated the women to their own banquet during the final seven-day period of the feast. Notice with me verse 9. And the text says, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Historians believe that this banquet included not only female guests of those who were from without, but it is believed that this king had over 360 concubines, and that it would include, in another word, all of his, all of his harem. Here we're introduced to his wife in verse 9 as a unique woman. She emerges on the pages of Scripture ever so quickly and ever so briefly, and then she will disappear never to be seen again as well. And, and what is it that we know of Vashti? Vashti is the way you're supposed to say it. I had a good friend growing up. Her name was, we said Vashti. So every time I read it, I want to say Vashti. So if I slip up, just give me grace. It's interesting to know that her name is Vashti, and her name literally means desirable one. Now, it, it very well may have been an honorary title. Some commentators say that this was just simply a designation for the queen, any queen who was there. And others say, no, this is the, the meaning of her name. Jewish tradition teaches us and tells us that Vashti was the great-granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the former king of Babylon. So this queen, Queen Vashti, is here entertaining, here having her own feast with the women, when all of a sudden she is put in a very precarious position. Over at the men's feast, as we've already touched on, the king, who is filled with wine, gave the eunuchs seven eunuchs in order. Notice with me verses 10 and 11. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, he gave them instructions and orders to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show, that what is the purpose here? In order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. In other words, King Ahasuerus had shown his splendor, his wealth, his power for six months in a multitudinal types of ways. But he decides in this moment, in his raucous party, that none of this is quite good enough. In fact, there is one more possession to show and to display, to be the envy of the crowd, and that is Vashti, his, his wife. In fact, I'll be careful here, as you read in the, the writing, if you read in the text, 
he ordered her to come before him, his presence, wearing her royal crown. I'm not going to go into background, but it's enough to say, and only her royal crown. In an absolute dehumanizing type of order before men and before his party. And so we look here, we see what a, a pagan king, what a, a man of the flesh. We, we see everything we need to see about this king. And now we're introduced to Vashti, and how is it that Vashti will respond? How is it that she will, will she obey? Will she, will she respond in this way? Well, here's what's interesting. Herodotus, we refer to him from time to time. He was the famous ancient Greek historian. Herodotus makes clear that this is nothing new. That Persian kings actually did this, and they, they did this a lot. They loved to parade their wives in these types of ways before other rulers. And so we see that this is nothing new. How is it that Vashti will respond? Well, before we answer that question, I want us to just to kind of hit pause. Because I know in a text like this, this is Old Testament narrative, this is history. We're walking through details that the Holy Spirit of God wants us to know. And I understand that maybe on a Sunday night, you're wondering, why are we, why are we in the weeds, LeGrand? And we answered that question this morning. We preach the word here at Grace. We're not going to apologize for, for, for preaching the word of God. But I just kind of want to hit pause and just make sure you're with me here this evening. Unless we sit in judgment of this and just think, yeah, my goodness, that is so out there. That is so removed. Friends, look no farther than American culture today to see that we're worse than Ahasuerus and his little royal party. Pull out your phone or don't, you get what I'm saying, and if you're not careful and a few taps and blinks and, quit and links, you're in a vast pagan land of the flesh. Well, let's, get, let's get even more real. As we think about, this is not just out there, but Persia, as we see ancient historians, Herodotus, the Greek historian, describing some of these practices, we see the explicit designation given here in the text. Just to put it where we live, as one commentator says this, Persia is Daytona Beach at spring break. It's the strip in Las Vegas where the slogan, what happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas. It's the local gentleman's club where the gentlemen are never found. It's the billion-dollar pornography business and industry that grows more and more lucrative every year. It's the sex slave industry that we see in the hidden markets of our land all around the globe. These are all too common scenarios where the weakest and the least of these are paraded and brought out into the public square and in the forefront. No, it may not be in a drunken party or a palace among kings, but it's right where we live. It's in the public square. Those who should be protected, respected, and under the care of strong men, men using their strength to protect their wives, men using their strength to protect their children, we see these type of men abuse that and destroy that. So this is where we live. This is not just a drunken king in a palace somewhere ordering his wife to do something that is crazy. The spirit of Xerxes, Ahasuerus, is alive and well even today. So what does she do? How does she respond? Look with me in verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Well, we should be concerned 
We, we should be very concerned. And the reason is, is that when you know about Ahasuerus' unhingedness, he truly had issues. For example, one inscription that was found by an archaeologist found this on a stone, a declaration, I am Xerxes, the king, the only king, both far and near. Well, the last time a king said something like that, that we, I say the last time, an example where we see a king say something like that in Scripture, we see that God struck down Nebuchadnezzar like an animal. Listen, God will not share his glory with anyone. And so earthly kings who have simply a, a, some measure of authority that is a delegated authority given to them by God on high who stand and make declarations like, I am the king, the only king, both far and near, you better back away from them lest lightning strike and somebody's about to die or become a dog or become animal-like. This man was so unhinged that historians tell us that he was not to be crossed. He had an ir irrational Rage. In fact, our text tells us, verse 12, he was furious and his anger burned within him. We could do an example, we could do a walkthrough. And just, this would be a great text to give an example of the issues of anger and the, the, all of that type of thing, the spiritual heart issue of anger. We will not do that uh, here tonight, but I'll give you some examples. He ordered, for, for instance, in one example, that bridges be built across narrow places of water near the Black Sea in the Mediterranean. The bridges would ultimately become destroyed through a storm before they could be used by his army to cross. And when he found out that the bridges were destroyed, he executed the engineers who built the bridge as if it was their fault. Then he sent soldiers into the water, as I mentioned in our introduction last time, to take shackles into the water to imprison and to punish the water. Don't ask me to explain that. But the second thing he did is he sent soldiers into the ocean to stab the waves with molten hot irons as, as punishment to show them who was boss. The only thing I could come up with is really just trying to scare the soldiers to show them he was crazy. Not the ocean, but maybe he truly believed that. Here in this text, we see in verse 12, Queen Vashti's refusal Maybe this is the first time she's ever been asked to do something like this. Maybe, as historians say, this was a pattern that was not unusual. Maybe she says, no more. We're going to take the text at surface level and say, this is the first time. Regardless, the point is that she refuses. She will not surrender her dignity. She will not come before all of these men in this way. She is not going to be their entertainment. And so we see here that the word comes back through the seven eunuchs, Queen Vashti, refuses. Now, there's an audience that sees this refusal. The guests are shocked. Ahasuerus, the supreme commander who had been ruling over the world, suggesting over the past six months through his feast that he could command the empires of the world. Let's come together. Let's attack ancient Greece. They will be nothing for us. His wife will not heed his command. His anger is furious, and it burns within him. Well, as we round out for a close for this evening, I want to quote here from Alexander White. He says this. He's a commentator of New Testament figures and scriptural figures, Old Testament, New Testament figures. And he says this regarding Queen Vashti. He says this. The sacred writer here in Esther makes us respect the queen amid all of her disgusting surroundings. The brave queen refused to obey the royal order. Her beauty was her own and her husband's. 
It was not for an open show among hundreds of half-drunk men. Amen to that. We can't help but admire Vashti here. She's one of the interesting characters on the pages of Scripture. We don't know anything about else about her character. We don't know anything about her knowledge of God, her fear of God. But we just know this. She said no. And she would not bow and surrender her dignity to this pagan king. Well, as we hit pause this morning, I just want to land the plane here. We, of course, are going to continue to worship through the remembering of the Lord's table. But, you know, it's interesting. We often, as we saw this morning, one of the points, if you remember, was that Jesus says, I will build my church. No one has authority over the church but the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we've lived for decades and for years, you know, talking about, listen, we are those as Christian citizens who honor both government you know, Caesar, if you will, rendering under Caesar that which is Caesar's, and rendering under God those things which are God's. And those worlds have never collided in our lifetime that I know of, or at least in my lifetime. I won't speak for you guys. We touched on that this morning. Oftentimes, we see that doctrines in Scripture, one doctrine that we could point to is the very obvious teaching of wives and, and husbands. The fact that wives, in Ephesians 4 and other passages, give teaching to the fact that wives are to submit to their husbands, and listen, I just want to touch on the fact that Queen Vashti here is, is just a woman who is a model for us that you obey your husband until your husband tells you to do something you cannot obey. In other words, you fear the Lord, you follow the Lord's teaching and structure and pattern until you are forced or put into a situation that you cannot, by conscience, follow through on. And that would speak for any dynamic of relationship church. You're to submit to your boss. You're to submit to your, those who have the rule over you, in a sense, rendering honor to them, serving faithfully as employees, until they cross-grain and ask you then, using that authority, to then do something that is immoral and evil. Children, if you're here this evening, let me just say a word to you. Listen, you're to, you're to respect your adults. You're to respect your authority figures. We need more teaching on that in this day and age. We don't hear it enough. And we don't pick hobby horses here at Grace, and next Sunday night I'm going to talk, teach on this, and next Sunday night I'm going to teach on this. We teach expositionally here. We have many opportunities to try to cover and bring the whole counsel of the Word of God here, 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 and here. And the Word of God will meet the need. But let me just say, children, if you're here, you need to submit to your coaches, your teachers, your parents with loving respect and humility. But don't you ever obey a command that is evil, immoral, and wrong. We see these tensions in Scripture with the church and the government, with husbands and wives. I'm bringing in some other application here uh, as Paul gives instructions, Ephesians chapter 4, relationships. We, we need more of that. We see the kind of the dissolving of all these things that the church gives or the Scriptures give instruction for. We just have in our day and age every man doing that which is right in his own eyes, and they're the captain of their fate, and they're the master of their souls. Well, these are ways the church shines. Again, just to touch on the fact, when do we not obey our husbands? When do we not obey our boss? When do we not obey Caesar? When any of those individuals or entities come across the word of God. We say, with Luther and others throughout history, here we stand, we cannot do anything else. Kill me, imprison me, but I will not do what you say. And by the way, we stand in a long line of godly men and women. A godly heritage. We have a godly heritage of people to look to who say, we will not do that. 
We will fear the Lord. Let him do what he wills. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, let's pray briefly here. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for just the ministry of the sufficiency of the word of God. You know all that we need. You know exactly what we need, and Lord, you know when we need it for sure. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless your word to the hearing of your people. As we saw this morning, we pray that you will build your church. And we pray with comfort and confidence that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, as we now come before your table, we remember your sacrifice for us. We live and, Father, remember the power of the gospel as we've been singing in preparation this evening. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die for us. We live in this power of the gospel. It's not simply the doorway that we enter into for relationship with you and eternal life, but Father, it is the dwelling, it is the room in which we live. This remembrance of the gospel is not just for what happens when we die, but what happens tomorrow morning at 4 a.m. when we get up, or 5 a.m. when we get up to begin a new work week. The gospel, Lord, is something we remind ourselves every single day. It's an item, as Paul describes in Romans 1, an item of first priority and importance. And so it's our joy to reflect, to remember your atoning work for us, your people. Father, thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you for building us spiritually, sanctifying us. Thank you for building us actually, physically. And we trust and commit all these things to your gracious hand. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.